Well, please uh, take a copy of uh, scriptures and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 36 through 46. We finished 1 Peter last week. So for a few weeks, we're going to be jumping around a bit. This morning, we're in the Gospel of Matthew to consider uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Matthew. Next Sunday, I will be, uh, I'll be on vacation, but when I get back, the plan is to look at the crucifixion of Jesus, and then that'll bring us to Resurrection Sunday, to Easter Sunday, and so we'll take a look at the resurrection and its significance uh, on that Sunday. And then after that, the plan is to get started with our new series in the book of Deuteronomy. So again, this is Matthew's account of the garden of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, there are a a number of significant moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Of course, all of them are significant. But there are um, high points. There are moments of special and unique significance. Moments like his birth, his baptism, his transfiguration, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and his future return. I want to suggest to you this morning that Gethsemane belongs on that list. Gethsemane belongs on that list. There are three things I want us to reflect on as we look at this important passage. I want us to think about the aloneness of Jesus, the agony of Jesus, and the ascent of Jesus. His aloneness, his agony, and his ascent. With those things in mind, though, let's first turn to the reading of this passage, Matthew 26, picking it up in verse 36. Let's hear God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing But the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again. He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, 
Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, just before this, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover. And of course, during the course of that Passover meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal, as a remembrance of his death for his people. So just as the Passover lamb was a a remembrance of God's mighty deeds of redemption in delivering his people out of bondage in Egypt, so now the bread and the wine representing the broken body and shed blood of Jesus would be a remembrance of the mighty deeds of the Lord in redeeming his people from sin. It was customary after the meal for people to sing songs together. Tradition was to sing Psalms 114 through 118. And uh, I'm tempted to go into detail about the content of those psalms this morning, but let me simply encourage you to maybe this afternoon sit down and read through Psalms 114 through 118 and read them as the psalms of Jesus. And think about what they must have meant to him on the eve of his crucifixion. But after singing these songs together, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room, left the city of Jerusalem, went down into the Kidron Valley and up into the western slopes, into the Mount of Olives, into a garden. The second Adam has come into a garden, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Many commentators throughout church history have recognized this striking significance when we, we set the story of the first Adam alongside of the second Adam here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the first Adam was in the Garden of Eden. His story takes place in the Garden. And the story involves the will of God related to a tree. The Lord told him, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you come under the curse and die. Well, now the second Adam has come into this garden. God's eternal son stands in a garden, and God's will is for him to go to a tree where he will be cursed and die. Friends, I don't think we can exaggerate the significance of this moment, just as the first Adam's choice plunged the entire race into sin. So the second Adam's resolve to go to the cross will result in the salvation of a new humanity. And so as we look at this passage together, I, I want us to meditate on these three themes which put our focus squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with his aloneness, his isolation. In verse 36, Jesus withdraws into the garden with 
The 11 remaining disciples, Judas, you remember, left during the Passover to enact his betrayal. And now Jesus has taken the others into the Garden of Gethsemane. And notice, first of all, how he stations eight of them to remain while he goes ahead to pray. He takes with him the the inner three, we might say, Peter, James, and John. And going a little further, then he stations them and tells them to watch and pray with him. And then Jesus goes a little further, now completely alone, to pray. We've got to ask, what, what is the point of this? What is the point of his isolation? And I think it's, it's meant to show us here that the work that Jesus is committing himself to, the work of securing our salvation could never ever be done in cooperation with others. Jesus asks his disciples to pray with him. Yes, he he wants them to watch and pray, but this task he must face alone because he alone can can do it. The, The disciples cannot bear the burden with him, the burden of sin. He alone can and must carry it. The gates into the valley of the shadow of death through which Jesus is called to pass are for him to pass through alone because he alone is qualified to bear the burden of the sin of the world. Only Jesus, only Jesus can enter the crucible of divine judgment to make satisfaction for guilty sinners. And so he goes alone. And in Gethsemane, I think we are meant to see him already marching into the gloom. So step one, leave behind the eight. Step two, his dearest friends are left behind. Step three, he goes alone. And if you think about the rest of the gospel narratives from this point forward until his death on the cross, Jesus is without any earthly companion. And the measure of his isolation becomes even more painfully obvious each time he returns to his disciples after a season of prayer. Did you notice that? He, he tells them to watch and pray with him. But after going and pleading alone with his father, Jesus returns to Peter, James, and John only to find them asleep. They've dozed off. Think about this. This is, this is a crucial moment in Jesus' ministry. He has come this far. He has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He is on the eve of his passion. And Jesus physically, bodily, is in such distress over what it will mean for him to be the sin bearer that his body is literally breaking down. And he knows that Satan is present. He knows that Satan is in the garden of Gethsemane like a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. And so Jesus' request to watch and pray with him is not a flippant request. It is an urgent command. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness 
And Jesus resisted him three times. Relying, by the way, on the book of Deuteronomy, on the Torah. But Luke tells us in that story, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That opportune time was now. In the garden of Gethsemane, Satan is here. When Jesus' soul is sorrowful unto death, when he faces the reality of what it will mean for him to carry his people's sin, to come under the wrath of God. And each time he comes back to his closest friends, his closest followers, he finds them asleep. Can you imagine how Satan would have taken advantage of this opportunity? Just just look at them. Look at them. You're you're, going to go through this? You're going to suffer for the likes of these guys? They can't even stay awake for an hour to pray with you. Remember my offer. You, You don't have to suffer like this. I've offered you the kingdoms of this world if you will only bow down and worship me. Of course, Satan is offering something he has no right to offer. But you can imagine, can't you, using a bit of sanctified imagination, Satan pointing towards these groggy disciples and saying, are you really going to go through this for the likes of them? You're you're a fool. You're a fool. And despite the kind of onslaught Jesus may have faced in his, his own agony, look, look at how Jesus responds to the failure of his disciples. And yes, on, he, he rebukes them. Let's, let's be clear about that. He rebukes them, and I think sad frustration. In verse 40, he asks them, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, his concern is for them. His concern is for them, and and he understands them. He understands their weakness, and he has compassion. They're they're tired and and worn out. Luke, Luke tells us in his account that they, too, were weary with sorrow, not fully understanding what was going to happen, but nevertheless, Jesus has been telling them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And so there's this question. This is a time of temptation for them too. How are they going to respond? What will they do when Jesus is arrested? What will they do when the one whom they have come to believe is the promised Messiah is condemned and crucified? Will they turn away? Will they reject him? You see, they needed to watch and pray lest they fell into temptation. But you see, when there's finally a moment of quiet, instead of pleading earnestly with God, they they simply doze off. Go to sleep. And so while Jesus does rebuke them, he he is patient with them, but his patience is not indulgence either. He, He knows our weakness, yet he still calls them and he still calls us to watch And pray. He knows the best guard against temptation is to be people pleading with God and yet, for honest, so often 
we find ourselves in a state of spiritual slumber. And so having found them asleep, and then having treated them with such patience, and repeated his entreaty to watch and pray with them, surely, surely this will be enough to awaken them from their, their slumber, to earnestly plead with God, right? No. No. This happens. This happens not once, not twice, but three times. He comes back after a second season of prayer. And what does he find? He finds them asleep again. Mark's, Mark's account hints at their shame. They, they tried to come up with an excuse. And then a third time, he goes off to pray, returns, finds them sleeping again. Even this time as Judas is leading a group of soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to carry Jesus away. Now just take all of that in for a minute. What, what has unfolded there? His, his command, his, his patience, his, his rebuke, his entreaty to watch and pray. All of those things failing to produce the proper response. Obedience. And still he does not abandon them. He, he doesn't disown them. Again and again he returns to them. Now, if we stop there and think about that for a moment, doesn't that tell us something about Jesus? And at the same time, doesn't it tell us something about ourselves? Because chances are we probably see a little bit of ourselves in the disciples, at least I do. How, how often have we heard the commands, instruction of Jesus loud and clear and fail to obey? Right? The desire to follow him is real and sincere, but we fail to do what we should. Of all nights, of all nights in Jesus' life, we might understand if at this point Jesus said, that's it, done. If he just walked away and left them behind, but he doesn't. He sticks with them. And, and don't you think that if he didn't give up on them then... Brothers and sisters, he will not give up on us now. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't say, I, I've had enough of you, I'm finished. No, he, he understands us. He, he knows the weakness of our flesh. He, he shows us patience. He keeps on directing us. He says what needs to be said. And as we will see clearly in this passage, he shows his unwavering commitment to not give up on us by resolving to do his Father's will. So whatever lessons we may take away for ourselves from the disciples' own weakness and failures here, I, I, let me bring us back because the big point here is not so much to highlight the disciples and think about ourselves, but to recognize the isolation of Jesus in this story. To recognize how alone, humanly speaking, he really was. And we, we know this. There are a few things worse than being alone, right? And being really alone. The sense of being isolated from others. And yet the Gospels are deliberately drawing our attention to and emphasizing here the isolation of Jesus. Jesus separates himself from his disciples and goes a little farther on his own. And that is because the task before him is uniquely his own. He alone can fulfill 
what is required. He alone is the suffering servant. He alone is the the shepherd who will be struck. And there is a sense in which his isolation begins right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think all of this is really described in the Gospels to help us understand that clearly an an Old Testament ritual is being fulfilled in the life and experience of Jesus here. Do you remember that Old Testament ritual which was intended to teach Israel how God would forgive the sins of his people? I'm referring to the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, when two, two goats would be taken and a hand would be laid upon the goats and the sins of God's people would be confessed over those animals and one of them would be slain as a sacrifice and the other would be led out, out of the city of Jerusalem into a desolate place, into the wilderness where it was to be released. And then it would go off on its own in wilderness In the wilderness, with the sins of God's people pronounced over its head, carrying the sins of God's people until the end of its life. And that's happening here. This is the first stage. The sins of the world are laid on him, and he will carry it to the very end in isolation. Now, as we recognize the the aloneness of Jesus, we we also need to think about the agony that he was experiencing. So look again at verse 37. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John, he, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Luke tells us that he was in agony. And you remember, Luke says that he prayed with such intensity that his sweat became like drops of blood. That's what I was referring to earlier when I said his, his body is literally falling apart. It's breaking down under the stress. He is distressed to the point where his body is failing him. Here in Matthew, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Jesus felt like he was dying. The way Jesus prays, I think, also uh, indicates the the overwhelming grief that he was experiencing. Verse 39, leaving the disciples behind, he, he went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed. His his agony is so intense that he simply collapses on the ground as though he's dead. That's that's what's being described here. So we have to ask an important question. Why is Jesus so heartbroken? Why, Why is he so sad? Why is he experiencing such intense agony? Certainly, Certainly it grieved him that he was going to be betrayed by one of his own. Certainly the failures of his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane brought sadness to his heart. And of course he understands what's in store for him. That he's going to be arrested and tried and and beaten and suffer unspeakable torments of the body. And, And yet 
while all of those things I'm sure contribute in some way to the sadness that Jesus was experiencing, it doesn't get to the heart of the grief that Jesus was enduring. So why is Jesus so heartbroken? Well, the key to answering that question is in Jesus' own prayer, isn't it? If you take a look at verse 39, you you see what he asks for. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, there's more to the prayer that we'll come to in a little bit, but we need to pause right there. Three times Jesus prayed something like, Father, if it's possible, take away this cup. So what is this cup? Well, it's the Old Testament prophetic metaphor of divine judgment. It is the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. It is is God's judgment on sinners symbolized in a cup of wine. Revelation calls it the cup of wine of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. It is the cup of God's judgment which God will press upon the lips of his enemies. And Jesus, Jesus anticipates drinking that cup. So why does he have a broken heart? Because See, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, pure, holy, spotless, undefiled, is to be made sin for us. That's why. That's why he's bowed down with grief. The dark cloud of Calvary is already beginning to descend on him and the agony that overtakes Jesus is the agony of the sin bearer of the world who feels in his body with a, with a depth he's never felt before something of what it will mean for him to be made sin for us. For the one who knew no sin To be made sin. Everything in Jesus. Every holy instinct in him. Recoils at the thought. Of coming under the wrath of God. It is a terror to him. And and we need to understand. That this request. This repeated request. it It is not a sign of weakness in Jesus. It is not a sign of reluctance. On his part to be our savior. It isn't disobedience. It is a request emerging from his holy heart. He has has never known sin before. He has never before desired sin. He's never defiled his hands. He's never had an impure heart. He has never known anything but the smile and embrace and approval of his heavenly father. And now in the frailty of our humanity, the sinless son of God faces the prospect of coming before God in all of his blazing holiness as a sin offering. As a sin offering that will be consumed. He is facing the reality of what it will mean to be the servant of the Lord who is stricken and smitten for the sins of his people as all of their sins are laid on him. 
And he will stand in the place of sinners until the justice of God is fully satisfied. You know, friends, sometimes we tend to, we tend to read the Bible in a me-centered way, don't we? We're, we're always asking the question, maybe even without even realizing, you know, wait, wait, where am I in this passage? And I'll tell you something that really irks me. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but from this day forward, let's never speak of our Gethsemanes. Okay? None of us, none of us, this is not to belittle any suffering that we experience in our lives, but none of us will ever come anywhere close to what Jesus experiences here and will experience in the hours to come. Gethsemane is utterly unique as the sins of all of God's people are, as it were, laid upon the shoulders of Jesus. And he begins the march to Calvary. And that's, friends, that's the fact that this is not directly about us is actually what makes this such good news. Because the, the reality is the reason we will never experience this kind of grief and this sorrow of coming under the wrath of God is because God's own son did it for us. And so if I can speak in these terms, we, we talk about application. What is the application of this passage? It is simply this. It is to see Jesus. It is to see what Jesus was willing to do in obedience to his Father for our sake. Full stop. That's the application. We, we need to see the lengths that he was prepared to go to in order to secure our salvation. The wonder of it, the sheer wonder of it, is that in this moment he doesn't turn away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, no, I can't do this. He, he faces down the darkness and knowing that there is no other way to rescue us, he rises and marches into it as the captain of our salvation. And that leads us right into the last thing I want us to think about. Not just the aloneness of Jesus, the agony of Jesus, but finally the, the ascent of Jesus. Weighed down with, with sorrow and unimaginable grief, Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, for the second time, he, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so as Jesus is agonizing over his pending passion, he comes before his loving father in prayer. And we, we need to think about the language that he, he uses here because it's, it's packed with significance. He addresses God as my father. In Mark's account, he, he, he says, Abba, Father, reflecting his, his own awareness of the Father's love for him, but, but also indicating the affection that he has for his father. There is a, a loving bond 
that's on display here between the father and his son. And so although Jesus pleads with his loving father, since all things are possible for him, that he might let the cup of wrath that looms before him pass, yet you see within the request, Jesus never ever for a moment doubts his father's love. He trusts and clings to his father even when he is faced with this most terrible suffering. He's he's living by faith, dear friends. Trusting in his father. Knowing that his father is good and wise and loving. And I think here is such an important lesson that Jesus teaches us about the life of faith. Jesus does not question his father's love, even here in the darkness of Gethsemane. But we can go a step further than that. Jesus does not try to condition the father's love for him on the father taking this cup away from him, does he? We can... We can add another step here. We could say Jesus does not condition his love and commitment to the Father on the Father taking the cup away from him. In other words, Jesus is not saying, Father, if you really love me, you'll take this away. And uh, if you don't, I can't possibly love you because you, you must not be good No, no, that's not it at all. Despite perhaps the seeming appearance of his father not being truly loving by not removing the cup, Jesus is confident that such is not the case. And knowing the unwavering love and goodness of his father is what strengthens and enables Jesus to say from his heart, not my will, but your will be done. See, the incarnate son will faithfully do what his loving father wills, knowing that his loving father always wills what is good and wise and right. Now, what does that teach us? I think we need to bring into the picture here our own adoption for a moment. We are, we are God's children now, says the apostles The Apostle John, we are sons in the Son. We are counted sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the same filial relation, the same loving relation between Father and Son that the Lord Jesus enjoys and has with his Father. God's adopted children. The spirit of adoption dwells within us, enabling us to cry out from our hearts, Abba, Father. And look, there will be things in our lives that we do not want. Things we wish we could get rid of. Things we wish God would take away. And Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father. And we need to understand it's okay to say, Father, please take this away. Sore trials, sad providences, darkness, disappointment. We, we don't want to face, and, and we, we find ourselves saying in prayer, Father, please let this pass. And the first thing I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, is that's okay to pray. 
It's okay to pray. Jesus' own prayer gives us warrant to ask that. Because he shows us that in the security of the loving bond that we have with the Father in Christ, we can, we can bring our troubles and sorrows and, and bring them before him and pour out our hearts with full assurance that he cares for us. But I think Jesus' experience here also teaches us another crucial lesson. This is a hard one. But the lesson is that the father's love for his children is is not conditioned on him taking away hard things. Nor should our love for him be conditioned on his removal of those things. The father not removing the cup from Jesus' lips was, was not an indication that he loved his son any less. You see... Now, Jesus learned to trust that what the Father wills is always good. It's not to say that the the suffering that is experienced is good, but that God in his infinite wisdom and power brings forth good from it. And that that was proven, wasn't it? That was proven in the life of Jesus Christ. On the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, the father did not abandon his son to the grave. The father vindicated his righteous son by the spirit in his resurrection. And now in his righteous son, he has made the many to be accounted righteous. God's wisdom and goodness were confirmed in it all. But Jesus still had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, trusting in his heavenly father to see him through it. He had to trust his father. He had to submit his human will to the will of his father. You see, my friends, our elder brother's trust in his father shows us that we, as we've been talking about a few weeks ago, we we can entrust ourselves into the mighty hand of God. And no matter how hard, how sore, he will work good for his people because that's precisely what he has done in Jesus Christ. I'll just circle back with me for a minute to the words of Jesus again, where he says, not my will, but your will be done. We've got to ask, what, what exactly is being said there? There's my will, your will. How do we make sense of this? Jesus Christ, a true man, here, is aligning his human will with his Father's will. He is submitting his human will to the divine plan. Now here's the thing we have to appreciate. The, the Son of God eternally wills as son what the father as God eternally wills. There's only one divine will, okay? But within the incarnation, Jesus, the son of God, as true man, always needed to conform his human will to the divine will. And friends, that is absolutely essential for our salvation. 
It's absolutely essential for our salvation. There is a sense in which our salvation hangs on this phrase, not my will, but your will be done. Because it indicates in a culminating way that throughout his life, in every action and word, there there was a truly human pondering of what the Father wills. Behold, it is written of me in the scroll, I I have come, O Lord, to do your will, says the psalmist, of course, speaking of Christ. And there was always a truly human, willful decision to do the will of his Father. You see, the Son of God became our Savior by humanly willing what his Father eternally willed for our salvation. And it all culminates here in this moment in Gethsemane when Jesus faces what it will mean for him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he resolves, he commits to being that sacrificial Lamb. In effect, he is saying, I will be Jesus. I will be the Lord who saves his people from their sins. Just notice one more thing here. After returning to his disciples for the last time, see that Jesus knows his hour has come. The hour he has spoken of in the gospel saying, my hour has not yet come. Well, that hour has now come. He will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And, And you see, now having resolved to do his father's will, he says, rise Let us be going. See, the betrayer is at hand. You've got to imagine this for a moment. Jesus knows that Judas is leading a group of soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him and haul him away. And with full knowledge of what that means for him, he says to his disciples, rise, let us be going. What does Matthew want you to appreciate there? He wants you to understand that it's Jesus who takes the first step. This isn't Judas having his way with Jesus. Satan in control. This is Jesus lifting up his head saying, Father, I will do this. Rise Let us be going. He has raised his fallen face from the ground and he has resolved to carry out his father's will. The hour has arrived and his settled, determined purpose is to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and me. I wonder if you know what Gethsemane means. The word Gethsemane, it means oil press. It's very likely that the Garden of Gethsemane was an olive tree garden, perhaps, with a press somewhere nearby in order to make olive oil. When you think about that, what, a, what an apt title for the scene of Jesus' agony. As the will of God for Jesus is pressing down on him. His, God's will for our deliverance is beginning to 
bear down on Jesus in, in a, on, with a weight that he had not yet experienced up to this point. Jesus, we see here, is beginning to experience in his, in his senses, in his emotions, in his own body, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, as Isaiah 53 puts it. And in that moment, as the weight of it all is bearing down on him, breaking him down, Jesus says, Father, I will do this. And we need to appreciate then this this fundamental truth that we probably don't think about enough. Let me put it this way. You are saved by works. You understand that? Your salvation is by works. Your salvation depends on the perfect obedience of a true human being. But it's not your works and it's not mine, is it? Praise be to God for that. Because again, if we're to be identified with anybody in this story, it's those drowsy, out-of-touch disciples, isn't it? You know, our best attempts at obedience are shot through with inconsistencies and failures. We, we desperately need a substitute who can truly act for us and take our place. And the Garden of Gethsemane is screaming at us, here he is. Here is the one who throughout his life and at this culminating moment conformed his will, born under the law as a man, conformed his will to that of his Father in heaven and committed himself to going to a tree, to Calvary's cross where he would stand in the place of sinners, where he would be treated as our sins deserve. You see, friends, this story, it's telling us that Jesus is perfectly suited. He is perfectly fitted to rescue you, to to be your savior. He obeyed for you. He died for you. He looked into the darkness of the path set before him and trusting in his father, he stood up lifted up his head, and he took the first steps to Calvary. See, he committed. He resolved to take that cup, that cup of divine wrath, to satisfy the demands of justice, which simultaneously set on display the infinite mercy and grace of God for undeserving people like us. But here we've got to appreciate that there was nothing in the cross that Jesus wanted. There was nothing in the cross that appealed to his desire. There was nothing about the cross that drew his holy instincts. We can say in one sense it was repulsive to him. It was a terror to him. And yet, trusting his father, knowing his father's plan, he committed himself to it. He went there. He he went there in obedience to the father for you and me. 
So I've got one question as we wrap up, and we're done. Going back to what I was saying at the beginning about the first and second Adam, my, my question is very simply this. Which, which Adam do you belong to? The Bible gives us two Adams, two representatives of the entire human race and says we're, we're either in the first Adam or in the second Adam. We identified with the first Adam who took from the tree in disobedience or do we identify with the second Adam who, who went to the tree in obedience to be cursed and die? The reality is we don't have to do anything to be identified with the first Adam, do we? It's who we are by nature. We, we come into this world sons of Adam. So the pressing question for us is, how, how, how am I identified with the second Adam? How am I found in him? And the answer of the gospel, dear friends, is, is by faith. By faith. Putting, putting your trust in Jesus, who obeyed perfectly and drank the cup of divine wrath to rescue his people to the uttermost. The gospel says to you and I, dear friends, trust him and he is yours. And you are his. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the incredible gift of love you have given to weak and undeserving people like us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your obedience and by your suffering, we have redemption and that it is a free gift. It isn't something that we earn. It isn't something that we achieve. It is something that we receive by faith. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that each and every one of us in this room this morning would be found in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who perfectly obeyed and died on the cross to set his people free. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.